Would you like to introduce yourself for um, the listeners? Sure. My name's Aubrey Gordon. Uh, I co-host a podcast called Maintenance Phase, and I've written a couple of books, mostly about being a very fat lady. Hello. <laughs> Great snappy intro. Sure. <laughs> Can I ask when and how did you start um, getting into writing about dieting discourse and anti-fatness? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, my first uh, piece that I wrote was actually a letter to a friend of mine who was a thin lady. Um, and she and I just never quite saw eye to eye. We would talk about body image stuff. We would talk about eating disorder stuff. Uh, we would talk about all manner of things. And we would always just sort of miss each other in those conversations. So we, we sort of kept missing each other in those conversations. So I wrote her a letter to be like, hey, I feel like there's this big missing piece, which is you're having a tough time acknowledging that you being in the body that you are in and me being in the body that I am in invites really different experiences. And like, let's spend some time talking about that. Um, so I sent it to a friend of mine to proofread the letter and make sure I wasn't being an absolute jerk. And he suggested posting it somewhere online. Uh, so I did. And within about a week, it was either 30 or 40,000 people read it. I mean, it got, it got legs real fast. So I decided to keep writing because I had a lot more to say about being a fat lady. That's for sure. How long ago was that? Uh, that would have been 2016. Okay. So it's been a minute. It's been that a minute. Also kind of like right when a lot of like body positivity discourse in general is circulating around the internet. Yeah. Yeah, it sure how was. Do you, how did you feel about um, the discourse that was happening at the time? And has your opinion um, like changed yeah. over the years? Yes and no. Uh, I would say the way that I felt about it at the time was pretty profoundly excluded. Um, as a fat person, like part of what happened with body positivity is that that was a movement that originated has sort of dual roots, right? One in fat activism and one in eating disorder recovery. Um, and body positivity, it's sort of, at its root was much more about um, how do we reduce exclusionary policies? How do we make sure that there is space for everybody, regardless of what their body looks like or how it functions, right? Like it was much more of sort of an umbrella movement for justice. And what happened was in the 2000s and 2010s, corporations were like, uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh, this sounds like a word that we can use in advertising. And their sort of 15 second spot version or 30 second spot version was understandably completely apolitical, right? Um, that helped reframe it for viewers, um, many of whom were outside of the movement prior to sort of think of body positivity as just how you think about your own body. Do you feel good? Do you feel positive about your body? Then you're body positive. There you go. You did it. Right. <laughs> yes. um, yeah, totally. Nailed it. Hey, I spent $10 um, at our store. <laughs> I mean, totally now shop at Aerie or whatever. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So at the same time, that was sort of bringing droves and droves of people, mostly thin women. And when I say thin, I mean, just people who don't wear plus sizes, right? 
that was bringing droves and droves of people to using this sort of framework of body positivity, quote unquote, that was, again, just like sort of bore no resemblance to its uh, own movement history. And those were people who were not necessarily working on their bias against fat people, right? Their project was to feel okay about themselves. And sometimes feeling okay about themselves meant looking at someone like me and going, thank God I'm not that fat. Or body positivity is for everyone as long as you're healthy, knowing full well that I am not a person who is ever going to appear healthy to many folks. Or body positivity is for everyone as long as you're not quote unquote obese was like a very common phrase that was getting thrown around at that time. So it felt very strange to watch this movement that had been built predominantly by fat people be sort of rushed by people from outside of that community who then sort of barred the gates uh, for the very people who created the movement to come, come back to it or to retain our space in it or what have you. Um, it felt like a really alienating time. And I think since then, it's been really interesting. There's all of this discourse. You did a fantastic video about this. Um, many folks have sort Thank of you. tackled this topic of um, of uh, like thin is in um, and that whole idea as it relates to the body positivity movement. And I think what I've heard from a lot of folks who are not fat people is like, oh my God, this means body positivity was all fake, right? Or like, it was all for not, we didn't really mean it. And, and I, that feels like a real case to me of like, somebody should have asked a fat person because we absolutely could have told folks this is uh, a project for people who are within shouting distance of the beauty standard to feel better about being within shouting distance of the beauty standard. And part of the way that we do that is by developing an in-group and an out-group and like, hello, I'm 350 pounds. I'm like almost never going to be part of the in-group as it relates to any beauty or health standards, you know? Yeah. But I am wondering if you have mm -hmm. any like, because just going backtrack to the whole thin is in thing, um, yeah, totally. Do you have insight on why that came back? Yeah, I mean, I don't totally know why. I think probably COVID and lockdown had a lot to do with it, that people were experiencing a level of panic about gaining the quote unquote COVID-19, right? Mm. That uh, folks had been in their homes quite a bit and wearing comfy clothes quite a bit. Uh, oh, what a crime. Uh, I know. Ridiculous. <laughs> Lock us all up. Terrible. Um, that like, it feels like this was a natural supercharged response to, okay, okay, okay. We all said some nice things about people who were size 10s. <laughs> now let's move on and get back to the real business of getting as thin as possible and a, of sort of telling ourselves a story about whose bodies are superior and whose bodies are inferior, right? Mm -hmm. um, it also feels to me very linked as anti-fatness long has been to anti-blackness and part of a backlash there um, to organizing around Black Lives Matter and organizing around deaths of folks like Eric Garner um, and Philando Castile and so many others, right? And it feels related to uh, and, and sort of serves a gender policing backlash that we're currently going through, right? That yeah. one of the main ways that we think and talk about fat uh, is as sort of quote unquote degendering 
for desexualizing bodies, right? Um, and uh, the thinner people are, the more we sort of perceive their bodies as being in line with a gender binary that um, for cisgender people, we tend to find comforting, we tend to find soothing, we tend to make order of our world through understanding uh, genders as like distinct and separated, and there are only right. two, and pick one and move on, right? It's <laughs> just like, <laughs> no, no, but okay. Um, it, it feels like it's a conversation that sort of props up a number of other backlashes that are occurring currently. I'm curious about you. I mean, you've spent a ton of time thinking and talking about this stuff. What's your take on like, where do you think it's coming from the return of the sort of like extreme thinness stuff? I mean, a lot of like what I look into is just fashion trends and how um, it's kind of all related in the sense that like body trends tend to also mirror fashion trends and mm. um, how like for the Y2K aesthetic, like early 2000s aesthetic, um, a lot of the silhouettes that were popular in the early 2000s are mm -hmm. about showing off like a flat stomach. Um, and so when these fashion trends come back in, like the associated body trends kind of ultimately come back in as well um, yeah. because everyone wants to show off like a flat torso when they're wearing mm -hmm. low rise jeans. I was thinking about this um, recently. We were just talking, uh, I was in New York and like the number of selkie dresses, the number of like puffy princess dresses that are happening right now also feels like, you know, it's sort of Bridgerton, right? There's a little <laughs> bit of Bridgerton in there that we yeah. get from all of this. And I think quite a bit of it also has to do with like a pretty intense traditionalist response to gender stuff, mm. right? That it's like, it's a fascinating moment to be like, it's wild that of all the fashion choices in all the world, we decided to get into a time machine and go back to Y2K and then like the 1800s. What? <laughs> What's happening here? What are we doing? You know, also with like in the 1980s, um, when mm. you know, we had Reaganism and Thatcherism uh, sure. and how a lot of like fashion companies were trying to push the frou-frou style of clothing yeah. like overly frilly like very like victorian adjacent type of silhouettes so it's really interesting how a lot of fashion trends seem to mirror like political movements that are getting lift totally and also like what a wild as hell response to <laughs> like women entering the workplace right is like essentially right. what that's where you're like cool we had 10 years of that now <laughs> put on your weird puffy victorian thing congratulations uh, now we need y'all to stop the cosplay and go back to training butter <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> have you seen the Shein controversy recently i am like passingly aware of it my okay. understanding i'm going to tell you what i think i know question mark okay and then you tell me how right or wrong i have gotten it how does that sound okay sounds great uh it sounds like Shein paid for a bunch of influencers to travel to china yeah. and like take a trip and see their factories and learn a bunch of i'm guessing talking points about how Shein is really not terrible guys it's fine don't worry about it Yes. Uh, and now there has been backlash for people working for those influencers working with Shein. Is that a fair, right. yes. very yes. basic no, <laughs> encapsulation? No, I mean, I, that's like generally like all you would really need to know. Um, Great. But I've watched this influencers videos like almost like mm. obsessively because I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like, what's happening? Like what what are yeah. the results? Wild choices like to make. <laughs> yeah. Um, And it was really wild because like 
she made a video about like packing for the trip. She's deleted so many videos, obviously, because the oh. backlash has been insane, which I do like feel bad for her for having yeah. to like be the one woman PR team for Shein. But yeah, totally. um, yeah, she made like a video just packing for the trip before she even went that was still up. And she had like a rem Rimua, Rimoa suitcase they're like this oh. luxury suitcase brand it's like twelve hundred dollars minimum for a suitcase she's holy hell of she and clothes and then in the background you see this like racks of like designer bags and i was like oh the <laughs> the discrepancy here because i feel like a lot of people justify yeah. she and by by saying that it's like affordable and that a lot of people who are not like upper middle class and above like mm -hmm. they can't afford nice clothes otherwise but also like another thing that i wanted to bring up to you is mm. so the influencer that was going viral she's also fat and she mm. kind of used that as another point for why she shops at shein and so mm. i was wondering what your opinion is on like the whole fashion industry not having enough options and you know fat people having to shop fast fashion or feeling like they have to shop fast fashion in order to be fashionable. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a real rub in a way that not everything else lands that way for me. I'm like pretty hard in the anti-fast fashion camp, yeah. like, but I'm also a person who has the economic privilege to be able to buy things from, you know, from smaller companies and from smaller designers and things that are made in a wider range of sizes and all that kind of stuff. There is a very real thing of like, listen, fat people have less than 2% the clothing options that straight size people have. Mm -hmm. Straight size people have, I think it's 48 times as many options as fat people have. So if we're looking at the economy of like, who's driving Shein, what's making this possible? It's not fat people. <laughs> we're too small of a buying demographic. Do you know what I mean? Like there are so many of us, but like, if we had 48 times as many options to pick from, and we were all just like, nope, signing up for Shein, <laughs> that would be one thing. But if Shein is, if like Shein and Old Navy and like fast fashion sort of companies, Forever 21 are the ones that are willing to make clothes for us, it doesn't leave fat folks with a ton of options, right? right. Which is really fucking tricky because Shein sucks. <laughs> they're awful. I don't like them. I don't like what they're doing. I don't want to buy clothes that like I know are driving like abusive workplace environments and poverty in the global South and like name a reason. I don't like it. <laughs> right? Like I'm not on board. And also part of how this conversation plays out is that fat people end up being scapegoated for decisions that are actually not ours to make for options that again, we just don't have. So I'm just sort of like, listen, leave fat people alone with our 2% of options. Right. <laughs> and if you would like for us to buy from X, Y, or Z sort of quote unquote ethically made brand, which is also like kind of a hinky term, right? Mm -hmm. Um, then like push those creators, push those designers to make things in our size, right? Like that's like part of the challenge. There's a reason we're all out here wearing fashion brand company and big bud press. It's cause they're at new works. <laughs> it's cause those are the three that are making things in our sizes, right? Like it's, it's <laughs> slim pickings out here. So I, I'm sort of of two minds about it, right? Which is like, 
I don't want Sheehan to have any more money or power than they already have. No, thanks. Um, and I also want fat people to be able to get dressed and to have clothes to wear to job interviews and dates and whatever other thing. It would be wonderful if those were made in a way that was more respectful of the workers who made it, that paid people better, um, that wasn't made in awful conditions, that didn't contribute to climate collapse, like all of this stuff would love. And if you're mad about it, be mad at the people who have the most options <laughs> and right. be mad at the company itself. Right. I've also noticed that like the people who are like pro Shein, they are usually like thin people who kind yeah. of like mobilize all these different arguments um, yeah. to package it, to make themselves feel better. And totally. also Shein had a store or a pop-up or something in Paris. <laughs> what? This also came from <laughs> I was That's like, a mad lip. You're making Sheehan that up. <laughs> There's no way. No, That's wild. Did. I know, because I especially feel like the one of the reasons why people like it so much is because of the online shopping aspect of it, where you can like order like a million things all at once. Um, mm -hmm. But they had like some kind of physical storefront and there were lines that were like wrapping around the block. And I, my friend like sent it to me too. And she was like, do you notice there's only thin people waiting in these lines? And so yeah. I think it's like a very valid point, but I also feel like it's just like overinflated, like the fat people impact of Shein. <laughs> Totally. Totally. Again, give us more options. So many of us will take more options. It's like, I, I mean, I think the other thing here is that um, many, many, many straight size brands that have expanded into plus sizes will stop at a 2X or a 3X. I myself am a 4X. I'm just outside the realm of what they are willing to entertain. I mean, like, Mara Hoffman just expanded to plus sizes and goes up to a 3X that is in plus size world, actually a 2X or a 1X. <laughs> oh, man, but like sizing? <laughs> so something, I don't know. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, it just feels to me like um, there is a huge conversation to have about ethical consumption. There is a huge conversation to have about um, sort of where are we putting our money and all of that kind of stuff. And also, all of this stuff at its core is going to be driven by regulation. It's going to be driven by upstream interventions, right? Um, that we can all do our damnedest to make X, Y, or Z company as unpopular as we can and as we want to. And that's all good work. And to be super real, they have to be in like violation of the law to stop doing what they're doing because they're making yeah. enough money that like, well, who's going to stop them? Not very many people. <laughs> Turns out, right. move. I don't know. What do you think? Like, talk to me about you sort of live and breathe this entire world of sort of uh, fashion trends and sort of the industry and all of that kind of stuff. What do you think is like the solution or a series of solutions, probably more accurately, to get at the amount of like just utter garbage that fast fashion companies are doing? I mean, I feel like it really is, like you said, like a legislative regulation type of solution because mm. I've also noticed like a lot of people just don't care. Like they don't care if they're like publicly shamed for it or like yeah. they'll come up with some excuses in their head about why they need this. And um, in the end, like me not shopping from Shein does nothing to like their sales and like the yeah, small yeah. group of people who I know, like it really is such like a small 
demographic compared to like the people who are spending like millions of dollars collectively, probably billions. Yeah. I have no idea what Shein is worth now valuation wise, but um, yeah, me neither. Yeah. It's like, it's like one of those things where I feel like it ends up being like virtue signaling almost mm -hmm. to be like, Oh, well, I don't shop there. Cause that's, that's yeah. really like the impact that it creates um, yeah. is just so people know that you have, um, a set of morals, but at the end of the day, like it doesn't actually change anything about what the company is doing. I think the only problem yeah. is that like for Xi'an, I mean, they're based in China, so I don't even know what the whole international law would be for that. I also like, don't know. I'm like, nope, I, I also have no don't idea. Know. That's outside yeah. my jurisdiction. <laughs> totally. But I mean, like, listen, this is a place where fashion world and like, almost any other movement for social justice can sort of connect up, right? Because part of what makes a world without Shein possible is requiring that everyone get paid a living wage, including yeah. factory workers in China, including people in the US who could then arguably afford other options right. that aren't just $3 from Shein or whatever, <laughs> like whatever the current price point is from Shein, right? Like it feels like there's a real sort of like, uh, economic justice lens to put on all of this that's actually like oh the solutions to everything are the same which is make sure people are paid enough and work in safe working conditions what yeah. that would be great now I mean, how we get there i don't want to short sell <laughs> that's like you know a lift that people have been trying to make for decades slash centuries totally fair and um, it's a different perspective than just do you buy things from Shein or do you not buy things from Shein, right? right? It's a more holistic, global sort of perspective, hopefully. I'm also curious about what you think about Ozempic, which has oh, yeah. been another topic of conversation the last couple months. Um, yeah. And I'm sure you get asked about it all the time. So you're probably like, ugh, Ozempic. <laughs> <laughs> a tired topic, but... I would say... So listen, I haven't done the deep dive yet. I'm going to into the science of Ozempic and the production line of Ozempic and Novo Nordisk's relationship to all of this. And blah, 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 blah. I haven't done all of that, um, but I have tracked the discourse around Ozempic. And I will say there are two things that I find uh, sort of maddening and unconscionable about that discourse. One is, boy, oh boy, we are not hearing from fat people about Ozempic and we are not hearing from diabetic people about Ozempic, right? That like uh, there has been all of this sort of flurry of like, is Kim Kardashian on Ozempic? Did Elon Musk just admit to being on Ozempic? Right, right? like sort of this celebrity fixation on like who's using it and who's not. And a sort of mad dash uh, for particularly thinner folks to get their hands on uh, Ozempic to... Uh, lose a little bit more weight. And as a result of all of that, there has been a shortage for people who are diabetic and who need Ozempic as part of their drug regimen to keep their blood sugar in check and to keep them healthy and safe and all manner of things. I find it really sort of shocking and unconscionable that of all the thousands and thousands of words that have now been written and said about Ozempic, just a vanishingly small amount of that is coming from diabetic people and to a lesser degree from fat people, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's thing one. Thing two is, you know, I do a lot of uh, sort of research-driven writing and research-driven podcasting, all of that kind of stuff. 
And one of the things that has come up repeatedly in that research is that the more that people believe that their own body weight can be manipulated, the more likely they are to um, express a deeper bias against fat people and even personal dislike of fat people. So I feel like I am white knuckling my way through this discourse, knowing that like what comes next is a bunch of people who have been sort of politely holding back on all of their terrible beliefs about people who look like me feel like now the floodgates are open because anyone can become thin. All you need is this shot. Come on, what gives? Right. And also not anyone can become thin. Ozempic has limits on weight loss. It's very similar to the kinds of results you would see from a diet. And as soon as you stop taking it, you gain that weight back. Whoops. It's not a forever thing team. So it it just feels like a very fraught discourse that is like missing the mark for me in major ways. And that is become sort of like a little home for all of our weird, deeply sort of tortured, wishful thinking about becoming thin people or becoming thinner people, right? That this is like Mm -hmm. the Ozempic discourse is where folks go for like, finally, I'll be able to do X, Y, and Z things that fat people can also do and already have, right? Like, finally, I can wear a swimsuit. You could wear a swimsuit before. Finally, I could go on vacation. You could also go on vacation before. Finally, I can get that job that I wanted. You could have applied for that. It's totally fine, right? Like, (laughs) there's like... So many things that are getting attached to this. And part of that process is not just working through our own individual wishful thinking. It's projecting that onto a screen of fat people and going, these are the things that are not for you. I know that they're for me now because I'm thinner than I was before. But for you, no, no, no vacation, no swimsuit, no job, no nothing, right? Right. Um, So that part feels really tricky to me. I don't particularly care about a weight loss drug entering the fray. Like, it's just not a thing I especially deeply care about, but I absolutely care about how that is forming people's views of and opinions on fat people. And that part I find really, really troubling. And it feels like storms are brewing. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, have you noticed like within your research of all these like dieting trends that have come and gone, the fervor around like, Ozempic and like you know the hysteria around it has mm. that happened before with other oh yeah okay so it's like this <laughs> oh, yeah. new thing it's just like the new type of thing for this era but not a new concept not a new concept whatsoever um diet pills have been around for a real long time I think um in terms of modern history tracing it back we go back to medicine shows um and full on like yeah like actual like legit tv sh- medicine shows oh no oh my god do you know about medicine shows no oh, i don't know what a medicine show <gasps> okay let's go okay uh medicine show was a traveling like variety show that would go from town to town in europe they started i think in like the 15 and 1600s um they were a huge source of entertainment in the u.s in the 1800s and early 1900s um and they would be it seems (laughs) there was no tv i can't express to you how little tv there was in the 1800s none (laughs) so somebody rolled into town with a wagon and was like hey check this out i'm gonna pull somebody's tooth for your entertainment and then i'm gonna sell you on my weird diet pill or like 
tapeworm cure like come on down pay me a scant like whatever like two hundred dollars by today's money right for this one little bottle of pills that will take away your tapeworms and the way that you knew that they worked oh my god this is one of my favorite little (laughs) facty facts um the like tapeworm pills were the first sort of ones to take off amongst medicine shows because they would take a gel capsule and they would wind up a little bit of string in it. And then you would swallow the gel capsule and you would go to the bathroom and you'd be like, oh my God, look at the tapeworm that was in me when it was really just the string that was in the pill, right? It's the griftiest grift that ever did grift. It's really incredible. Do we know and that was also it? I don't remember. That came okay. up in research for an episode a couple years ago. I the uh, the dude had a big old handlebar mustache. Of course he did. <laughs> of course he did. Uh, <laughs> but I don't remember. It was like Tex Clark or something like that. It's not that's not it. But like some very like uh cowboyish name. Okay, so it is um, like traceable to someone. Sure. I mean, the first, the tapeworms guy, absolutely. Um, From there, we started getting diet pills pretty quickly because that became sort of a sign of particularly in industrialization, there was this concern that men were becoming less manly, um, that they were less muscular than they used to be. And we had to get men manly again. Um, (laughs) Boo. Um, (laughs) And that's sort of part of where we got diet pills from. I think the best and biggest recent example is um, FenFen from the 1990s. I do Uh, remember hearing about FenFen. So I was on FenFen as a teenager. Whoops, not great. Not great, buddy. Um, Which is also now what's being recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics for fat kids is to be put on Ozempic. Um, Wow. As young as age, well, nope, as young as age eight for Ozempic, as young as age 12 for bariatric surgery um, are the new guidelines there, which is gnarly as hell how did they even pass that because i thought ozempic is for diabetes the way that they structured it within the recommendations is um approved weight loss drugs uh so it's like sort of a little matter of time you know what i mean until approval is reached for younger people and so on and so forth and just because something's off label doesn't mean that it's not getting prescribed right uh things are prescribed off label all the time boo (laughs) anyway (laughs) FenFen was similarly hugely lauded. People were breathless with excitement about FenFen and Redux. They even had a sample consumer at the drug company, and they were like, the person we're trying to reach with our campaign is Roxanne Redux. She's tried everything. She's been on every diet. She's but right. That was sort of their marketing formula. And they did well reaching quote unquote Roxanne Redux, right? It was one of the most popular drugs in the country for the couple of years that it was on the market. And it was ultimately pulled from the market because it caused people's lungs to fill with fluid. Uh, and drowned them um, and caused people's heart valves to stop functioning correctly. So people were dying as a result of this. Was this not revealed within like testing? Don't they have to do like a lot of testing for medication? You would hope. Uh, So (laughs) FenFen and Redux got fast-tracked through the FDA approval process because of the amount of excitement about a possible weight loss drug. Oh my God. And yeah, it's rough, dude. (laughs) It's not (laughs) great. Um, So 
Uh, it got fast tracked through for that reason. And also because that is around the time that the National Institutes of Health lowered the threshold for people to have quote unquote overweight or obese BMIs. So this is a medical solution to something that was increasingly being defined as a medical problem. And as a result, Fenfen, Redux, everywhere, pill mills, as far as the eye can see. I mean, like really awful stuff. And the only thing that pulled it off the market was people dying. And I feel like Ozempic has some testing behind it, as I understand it, but for a drug that you need to stay on for the rest of your life in order to maintain weight loss or in order to maintain your blood sugar, it really feels like we should have some testing on people who take it for the rest of their lives. Like that seems like an important part of the equation. Um, And as far as I understand it, that's not uh, yet happened just because it's too new and the excitement outpaces the research, right? Well, okay, so this is going back like a bit more mm. when you were talking about your two points with Ozempic and mm. one thing you said about it was like how people are speculating on celebrities. Do you feel like celebrities have any responsibility to disclose if they're on it? God, that's such a tough one. I would be super curious to hear your take on this because I'm sort of of two minds on this one. On the one hand, I think there have been some celebrities that have been upfront about how they lost weight and that it was kind of a miserable process for them, right? Kumail Nanjiani is a great example. That's very helpful and much more instructive to folks than just being like, I just ate chicken breast and, you know, (laughs) hiked around a lot, (laughs) right? The flip side of that is that, you know, I'm a teeny tiny bitty baby public figure compared to any of the people we're talking about here. And people are so absolutely vicious and ruthless about other people's bodies that I don't want to be like, you have to disclose because I know what comes after that, which is people are horrendous for years about that stuff, right? Yeah. Um, And bring all of their judgments to bear on X, Y, or Z celebrity or public figure. So it feels tricky to me. I wish that more folks would. And I also wish that there were conditions that allowed folks to be more upfront about that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you think? Tell me your thoughts. I mean, I agree. I feel like it's a double-edged sword. Like no one's Mm -hmm. happy either way. And I think, Mm -hmm. I think it honestly is just like the pitfalls of celebrity culture. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, we shouldn't just be propping people up in this kind of way to begin with, because it brings all these issues. But Yeah. yeah, I mean, I feel like when celebrities don't disclose, then Mm. it's a negative thing because it kind of like shows they're not aware that they create trends. And I feel like a lot of celebrities like pretend like they don't, but they do. And a lot of people like Mm -hmm. do pattern what they do based on what a celebrity says. Um, So I and also like even if they don't say anything, it's just like Kim Kardashian, she's like. People were saying, oh, she got rid of her butt implants. Like, she's so thin now. It's like, she didn't, I don't think she said anything about removing anything. But then people were like, they just saw her and they were like, oh, now I, I yeah. got to lose weight because Kim is setting these trends. Yeah, um, totally. So I think that's a negative thing. And that disclosure would hopefully limit some people from mm-hmm. making the same decisions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you totally. Never, you never know because I think, especially when it comes to weight loss and plastic surgery, like very physical, physical trends. Like once people have like their mindset on something, it doesn't matter. Um, If they have Mm -hmm. body dysmorphia, it doesn't matter like what the costs are. But 
Yeah, I think it's just like upsetting. Um, and I do think that like we shouldn't be talking about anyone's body in that way. But also like it's just the way that celebrity culture is like people talk about everything when it comes to a celebrity. <laughs> totally. And if celebrities don't disclose, then they just become grist for the mill of like a best beach bodies and in touch weekly or whatever. Right. And they become grist for the like, get it. She looks amazing. <laughs> right. Like that there is, I mean, I think Adele is a great case of that, mm. that she didn't say anything for months. And if you look at the comments on her early posts where she posted pictures of her thinner self, they are unhinged the number of people saying good for you you're gonna be around for your child now I was like what yeah, are we doing terrible. what are we doing right like she has said nothing we don't know if this lady is in chemo we don't know if this lady is it you know what I mean like this could be so many things um and so like when celebrities don't disclose people just fill in the blanks with all of their like weird rough assumptions about weight loss always being yeah. desired always being good and always being worth celebrating and I don't know that that's necessarily the case with Adele um I think a I mean, this might just be like gossip rag stuff, but I think part of mm. like her drastic weight loss, people were saying was rumored because she was depressed because of her divorce and the difficulty mm. of like the divorce proceedings, in which case it's like people are celebrating her body and being like, yay, she's depressed. And it's like, yeah, you never yeah. know anything. Totally. It's rough, man. It's rough out there. I mean, a good friend of mine, I've talked about this uh, uh, a little bit, um, a good friend of mine uh, lost quite a bit of weight a few years ago and kept getting congratulated all the time for it. And when I asked her how she was handling it, she was like, oh, I'm just being honest. When people ask me what diet, I just say the big C got cancer. That's how I did it. Oh my God. Like, right. And I was just like her take. And I think this is kind of correct is she's like, it's not my job to hold the discomfort that other people have created, right? Like mm -hmm. that's actually discomfort that they created and they should hold right. with the mistaken assumption that I like dieted my way there. And it's the result of tenacity and not like right. a growing mass of malignant cells in my body. Hey, right? Like, yeah. uh, it was uh, a really clarifying sort of conversation for me where I was like, oh, right, that's true. You actually should be able to say, honestly, you want to know how I lost the weight? Here's how I lost the weight. Whoops. I got divorced or I lost a loved one or I had cancer or whatever the things are like that. Right. Um, again, is like an uncomfortable conversation to have, but it's an honest conversation to have, mm -hmm. right? Much like the sort of celebrities disclosing kind of stuff. At least then we're all dealing with the same information, right? Like right. at least then we're all sort of like laying our cards on the table. I know. It's just like, I feel like when it comes to celebrities, like, I think it's different when you have a friend who like checks you in that way, maybe like, yeah. more. but there's so many cases where I've seen with celebrities where, you know, like when Chadwick Boseman passed away and people were mm -hmm. kind of digging up all like the discourse around him and people like insulting him for looking haggard. And then it was like, you know, he had cancer and you, and people yeah. were like saying, oh, this is why you should never make judgments about people because you don't know what they're going through. And then it seems like every cycle people do this with a different celebrity where they like pretend that case never happened. And they're like, oh, something yeah. must be trivial going on, which is why yeah. they look like this. Um, nothing yeah. could ever be that serious. Um, yeah. So yeah, it is like very harrowing. 
Yeah, it's a lot. And I also think like, listen, there is a lot of uh, rightful and reasonable critique of celebrities and, uh, you know, actors and singers and influencers and all kinds of folks, right? As as well, there always has been, as well, there always will be, so on and so forth. And also like, that doesn't mean you cease to be a person with a life and things to deal with. <laughs> it, right. you know, means you have a lot more wealth usually with which to deal with those things. It means a lot of other things, but like, yeah, totally. I, I'm on board with that. Stop I making assumptions. Negative Certainly back loop. Yeah. Cause it's like, yeah. the more you see this person less as like a person, the more money they get because they're like yeah. put onto this like godly pedestal. So it's like, totally. Yeah, absolutely. A, a snake eating its tail. I don't know if that's the right analogy, but yeah, I've heard yeah, it before. Yeah, yeah. No, I got you. I got you. <laughs> I have a question now that we've kind of siphoned our way into film TV. Mm. What do you think about um like narratives about fat people in movies and TV? Do you feel like it's gotten better? at all since like the 2000s okay no <laughs> no i sure don't so listen the 2000s uh late 90s early 2000s brought us norbit and shallow hal and the nutty professor and a big sort of cluster of fat suit comedies and there is this sense that like we left that there and we're better now except that a fat suit performance with the same sorts of messages just got nominated for a bunch of Oscars, the whale, right? right. We are now seeing fat suits being moved, um, not being moved aside, but being elevated to awards worthiness, being elevated to like, Ooh, it's a tough story that they're trying to gritty tale that they're trying to tell about real fat people, except it's not a film that was written by a fat person. It's not a part that was acted by a person who is as fat as the person on screen. Um, and by all accounts, it is a, you know, a film that is sort of a freak show about fat people, right? It just feels like there is way more sort of self-congratulation about what we're not doing than paying attention to what we are doing. Um, and I think, yeah, I don't think that fat portrayals have gotten a whole lot better. I am eternally grateful for people like Nicole Byer, who's just striking out and doing her own thing and like absolutely killing it. Uh, people like Caleb Heeren. Um, there are so many wonderful fat people out in the world making incredible media. Um, and that is in spite of dominant trends, not led by dominant trends, right. if that makes sense. Yeah, because I feel yeah. like with what you were saying with the whale it's like the mm. fat suit thing was like it moved from like comedy to like mm -hmm. yeah it's like an elevated <laughs> comedy where it's like we're still seeing this as a crazy thing but then because like the narrative has changed it's not as like clear cutting that this is still a joke totally and that like I mean, I think in the in the world of the whale, I have read the play. I've not seen the film. I don't intend to see the film. My understanding yeah. is it's pretty faithful to the play. In the whale, in the world of the play of the whale, that's where it stops being a joke and starts being serious. Where they're like, no, no, no. Fat people really are shut-ins who never leave their homes. Fat people really are constantly binge eating mm -hmm. and are repulsive in their bodies. And their bodies are there to repulse you as a viewer. And you 
you feel pity for this person, but you don't feel that they are human. You don't feel that they have agency and you don't feel that they are like a real fleshed out person with like interests and a life and all of this sort of stuff. It is a character that is reduced to, uh, to his fatness. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and is defined by how thin people see him, um, in a way that feels really rough. And like, listen, man, the plot points of that thing, that play opens with, him thinking he's having a heart attack while masturbating on his couch and having to yell for a neighbor to come in and rescue him where I'm like, so this is not like great. (laughs) Totally. Like this is not, (laughs) this is not a play that respects its lead character a great deal. This is not a play that is like doing right by it's sort of a, it's focus it's a play about a fat dude and it's called the whale team like (laughs) ah it's not great it's not great out here so it feels like unless and until we are able to get more lindy west's making shows like shrill more folks like nicole byer being in a showrunner position for her own work unless and until we have more fat people sort of at the helm of those projects they're just always going to be sort of limited by this imagination of fat people in relation only to our fat bodies through the eyes of thin people, right? Oh, not to be pessimistic though, but that just like, oh, reminded me. me because, um, you know, like the writer's strike and everything yeah. happening. And I was reading this article, I think it was on Vulture, where they were just breaking down like the whole writing industry, where it's at mm. at the moment, like the you know, the strike streaming services and how they play into it. But they were saying that because of the way that the streaming services, like it was basically like cryptocurrency for investors. Mm. They were like, oh, this is so new. This is so cool. We're going to put all of our money into it. Oh. And then now like they're not doing so well, especially Netflix, um, which is why yeah. they're putting all this like random stuff out, like not being mm. able to share accounts and mm. things like that. But the effect, the impact of the streaming services not doing too well is that a lot of um, writers also can't pitch stories that would be more risk-taking plot lines. And this one person they interviewed in the article, they had written a story featuring a trans lead and they couldn't get it taken anywhere because all the producers were like, no, we need something that's safe because we need something that ensures that we make money. So, I mean, listen, there's a reason we have a Magnum PI reboot on the air right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we are reaching back into the annals of IP to like <laughs> grab whatever we can that feels like quote unquote safe. Like I believe that 100%. I believe that 100% that folks want a surefire thing. Right. Um, and that, uh, it feels paradoxical to say that actually like the surefire thing is the thing that speaks to more people, right? Pose was a pretty great surefire thing. Shrill was a pretty great surefire thing. Do you know what I mean? Like we've got all of these, I mean, Rutherford Falls, Janish meeting in Rutherford Falls is like one of my favorite pieces of fat rep maybe ever. Those are all great shows that people just need to like give a chance to and they take off when we do, you know? It's I mean, a, I think it's a tough one. Man. Always will. It's just like these mm-hmm. you know, people at the top that refuse to yeah. see that, or like, um, because yeah. we haven't had like a long history of these types of shows doing well because they are mm-hmm. so new. 
relatively to like, you know, the years of like white cis, like thin media that's existed. And so that's like what these like producers they're like thinking of. They're like, oh, well, you know, we need something that's been tried and tested for 50 years. <laughs> totally. This is one of my favorite acceptance speeches of all time is from Alan Yang accepting, I think, an Emmy. And his speech was essentially like, I'd like to thank all the old white dudes for telling the same story so many times that telling literally one other one seems like fresh and exciting. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that is kind of where we're at, right? That we are so used to hearing such a narrow slice of stories that mm -hmm. when anything different comes along, I mean, like Tangerine a few years ago, oh my God. Oh yeah. People like, lost their minds and rightly so it's a beautiful film and that only strikes you as like a radical thing in a context where virtually no trans people were getting any visibility at that point right like right because it's like it's, yeah people do a, actually live thing. their lives like this it's just not shown um mm -hmm. on any tv so you wouldn't know unless you were living it totally and in the case of fat people the media that we get about fat people is the biggest loser my 600 pound life and sort of in fiction world, mostly thin people's imaginations about how desperate fat people must be to become mm. thin. Right. Which yeah. I'm like, Oh, that's like a really narrow slice of like, nobody's got a job. Nobody's got a relationship. <laughs> nobody's like trying for anything else in life. Right. Like, it's no, no, no. It's just all about getting thin. To lose weight. <laughs> totally. Totally. So I'm just like, <laughs> it would just be great to see, like, I don't know what, like the fat people and trans people and BIPOC and so many other folks just like doing laundry, living life. <laughs> you know what I mean? A like life? having a good day, having a bad day <laughs> would be great, would be killer. Um, but we have sort of reserved those stories for, again, a very narrow slice of uh, of people whose stories we deem worth telling. It's a tricky right. one. Can I ask, like, when did you stop listening to this type of dieting propaganda with, like, your own life? Because you you did say you were uh, on fan So, like, what yeah. was, like, what was, like, the, the um, epiphany moment? <laughs> yeah, I would say um, for me, uh, two things. One... I wouldn't say that I stopped listening because sort of media around dieting and weight loss will find you no matter what. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. pick up a magazine, there's going to be an ad. Uh, turn on Hulu, there's going to be an ad. Turn on whatever, you know what I mean? Like it's just going to be banner ads online, wherever you go, it's sort of constant. So the idea that any of us could sort of step out of that and extricate ourselves, I think is um, not strictly accurate. Mm -hmm. um, for me, I think the thing that helped me the most was starting to look into it more, right? Um, that actually looking at, okay, Weight Watchers is making X, Y, and Z claims about their effectiveness. How do those hold up? You know, like, let's look at the actual research. Let's also look at who paid for the research. Oh, all the research that has been published has been paid for by Weight Watchers? Neat. <laughs> Right? Like, uh, <laughs> like, uh, I think um, finding out about sort of the roots of the BMI uh, being invented by an astronomer and used by insurance companies to charge policyholders more, like that's a big breakthrough to find that all of this stuff 
that I had just passively accepted as fact, the idea that there is an epidemic of fat people, the idea that you can lose weight from calories in, calories out, the idea that uh, the only people who have eating disorders are thin and white and cis women, Um, (laughs) right? Like looking into all of that stuff and finding that it is not only is it inaccurate, it's often a sliver of a much larger story, or it is the photo negative of the truth. It's like the exact opposite of what's happening has been hugely empowering to me. I I think um, I would not have believed, you know, 15 years ago that this would be the place where I would find so much power and joy is in being like, Hey guys, check out how wacky this nonsense diet is, <laughs> right? But like, it is a total joy and a total sort of feeling of freedom for me to go, oh, let's peek behind the curtain of what's going on with X, Y, or Z diet or wellness or weight loss trend and find that it's like, you know, in the case of celery juice, a big trend from like five years ago, it's a dude who says he talks to spirits from the future uh, who have uh, called upon science that we haven't discovered yet. So it can't be fact-checked. Nice try. Like, <laughs> right. Like up with the spirits. <laughs> totally. That's right. That's right. And like, and listen, I'm the only medium. So actually you're just going to dig up to me. He's the only guy who can talk to the spirit. Whoops. Sorry. <laughs> like there is something really powerful about being like, Oh, it's entirely nonsense. It's entirely nonsense. And it's entirely propagated by people who are making money off of the nonsense. Mm -hmm. That feels really freeing and powerful to me to go, oh, literally no one knows anything about me or my body. And that's fine. And they can all just leave it alone because I know they don't know. Yeah. Like that feels huge to me. How about for you? You have been um, also in sort of in the diet culture critique world a little bit. You've been in fashion world a little bit. Yeah. Talk to me about like, have there been points of sort of a sense of liberation for you? I can say my first experience of any kind of liberation was when I left Australia. So mm. I, as just a preface, I studied there. I'm not Australian. Um, but <laughs> I, I was going to say, nice accent. You're really, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's like a saying in Australia where it's like, oh, everyone who comes to Australia loses weight uh, because they have a very intense like dieting culture. And I think that part of it is because so much, well, not every single city, but like there are lots of towns in Australia where so much of the year is just you in a bikini um, because the weather is like hot and nice. And so when I was there, I definitely like felt like I needed to lose weight. And I've always been thin mm. my whole life. And it was like mm. this really rude wake up call where I was like, mm. suddenly like, oh, my God, like I have to start losing weight, um, mm-hmm. which is like insane. And like, I mean, it's like privilege that I was able to get that far in life without having to think about it. Um, totally. Does It doesn't make it feel <laughs> any less terrible. But like, yes, <laughs> agree. Right. But also because I had like a lot of friends who are international and from China and they also Mm. have a crazy dieting culture in Asia that um, is, I don't know how much you know about like the Asian dieting culture, um, Mm. but it is like a whole can of worms. (laughs) 
like yeah no the um the most intense emails uh that we tend to get from listeners are folks in uh china korea japan and uh india Woo, Woo. it's rough out there it sounds real bad team I know. Um, But aside from that, I haven't done a deep dive. So yeah, tell me what you know. I mean, it's worth looking into just because it's crazy and interesting um, Mm. in a sad way. But like in the whole K-pop industry, like I would also, I was like into K-pop for a little bit and I would read like Mm. the translated magazine interviews that they would do with the stars and they would say Mm. their type for girls because, you know, it's like they're pandering to their female fans. They would list the weight also of their type of girl. And it was like, it's like that specific where they're like, oh, I would only date a girl who's 120 kg. Um, so. <laughs> Fascinating. It was very pervasive. And also like K- the K-pop industry, like there's so many issues with that too, with how they treat the idols. But a lot of them would have to go on these like insane diets and they would publicize Ugh. these diets um in a way where it's like oh you can try this at home too and i remember there was like this one k-pop star her name is iu and she went on a diet where she would only eat like three bananas a day with like water it was like the banana diet and i tried it for like one day (laughs) because it was so bad yeah that seems i don't know how to tell you like the disgusting combination of eating a banana and drinking a glass of warm water but there is something about that combo that is did it have to be warm yes (laughs) what because this is the weird ritualized your like digestive system warm water but it was it was disgusting um and then like you know the most unseasoned chicken like lean breast So, I mean, that was like what I was exposed to at the time that I was like, this is wild. This is like not what I experienced like in America. Um, But also it was like more harmful to me because I was like, oh, this is my culture. And these are people who look like me. Yeah, totally. Um, Versus like, I think in a weird way, I had this like dissonance when I was like growing up Mm. in the US and I didn't, and I grew up in a very white community too, Mm -hmm. where I was just sort of like, oh, my body will never look like that because I'm not white. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally, totally. Then when I came back, I came back to New York um, and I like suddenly was around like so many people from different backgrounds and so many people who looked different and like different body types mm-hmm. and everything. And I feel like that was a positive wake up call where I was like, oh my God, like I'm around so many people who are so beautiful mm-hmm. and they have so many things to say and they're so like... Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't care so much about all looking like clones of each other at the beach. Yeah, totally, <laughs> and like, totally. And that was yeah. really nice. But now I'm in the fashion industry and I feel like I'm seeing all this other stuff about, you know, like challenging all the progress I've made for myself personally. I'll tell you this. Uh, I was just in New York and took my first ever trip to the Met because I was like, I feel like I should go Ooh. see some art, world-class art. Why not? And the featured exhibit at the Met was Carl Lagerfeld, Uh, which is another one of just like, wow, everyone really doubling, tripling down on like, we don't want fat people here. We don't want mothers here, right? Like take your, we don't want Jewish people here. We don't want like, like the number of 
communities of people that that guy was more than happy to shout about hating publicly is really something it's like it's weird because the met gala they do these like designer themed exhibits to honor a Mm. passing of a designer and usually it happens like the year after but carl died Mm -hmm. in 2019 and because of the pandemic they just decided to delay that Uh, but then i was like there have been so many designers who passed away in the block of like 2019 to 2022 we could have picked someone else yeah 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 yeah. but you did a really good episode um or it was like two episodes on carl we did yeah we did an episode on the carl lagerfeld diet which is a real mind blower of a diet it's a real mind blower of a diet uh it is the the fanciest and most joyless recipes Uh, i have maybe ever read example uh hang on do you mind if i grab the book no absolutely grab the book okay uh (laughs) it boasts 120 gourmet recipes in it and the recipes are real sad uh one of them is vegetables in aspic Uh, aspic oh buddy (laughs) it's the name for jello when it's savory savory jello have you ever had that no uh bizarrely my mom has had it and she really <laughs> liked it growing up so every time i shit talk aspic she's like hey it's good and i'm like i don't need a cold can of tomato soup thank you that sounds not good to me goodbye uh so vegetables in aspic calls for uh four carrots eight ounces of green beans eight ounces of peas two stalks of celery salt pepper and gelatin you put all of that in a, a jello mold, pop it out. Uh, that is four servings. Everybody gets a half a carrot and a quarter cup of peas. Honestly, in Aspic, I feel like that's too many servings. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, it should be zero servings. No <laughs> servings for anyone. Thank you so much. <laughs> but it's just all stuff like that where it's just like, look, today you get to have mixed lettuce leaves and i'm like you're trying to make it sound fancy it's just leaves buddy it's just lettuce he's actually eating any of this stuff or is it like a ghost writer who came up with these crazy recipes i think most of his diet was just like diet coke and cigarettes that's my (laughs) guess i don't know that for sure but like that's what this photo is giving that's for sure that's a (laughs) diet coke and cigarettes photo no this is not a guy that's eating gelatin. Nice try. Uh, <laughs> have you ever tried yeah, no, a recipe from the book for fun? I have not because just not any of it sounds like fun to me. I mean, I'm just looking through. Okay. Listen, w- one of the more substantial recipes here is calves liver with wild strawberries. Like I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> That's not for me. God bless if it's for you. I'm good. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's okay. just like a, there's a bunch of that kind of stuff. Carpaccio. He's got a carpaccio recipe in here. You know, all the raw beef you're serving in your house. <laughs> the working man's diet. <laughs> carpaccio. <laughs> in aspect. That's what we need. Yeah. Oh, God. Whoa. <laughs> Rough going. If you have texture issues, neither of those will work great for you. Yeah. <laughs> How successful was that book? Did you ever find out? You know, I never found out. It is definitely not one of the biggest diet books that we have covered. I mean, French Women Don't Get Fat is in the same sort of vein. 
Uh, and that one was a humongo bestseller. But yeah, I mean, I think there was this whole era and Carl Lagerfeld was in it uh, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, where any famous person who was thin could write a book and be like, here's how to be thin. I did it. Like, Nailed it. Never dieted too you think like they were just sort of like oh we just need a book idea from you i mean listen share has a fitness book okay like, enough said <laughs> right I, uh i don't i don't think previously being fat was ever like necessarily part of the equation and actually okay. might be a sort of a knock against uh your saleability on that front <laughs> but i but i don't know for sure uh but like yeah there was sort of this time i mean it continues even more recently Oprah Winfrey did a tour of the United States with Weight Watchers, where she had all these big name speakers talking about their own health and wellness journeys. And they were all people like Jennifer Lopez and like Michelle Obama. And you're like, not The Rock was one of them. And I was like, no, we're not doing this. (laughs) It was just like, there was not a single like, Oprah was the only person on stage who had like lost or gained any sort of notable amount of weight. Lady Gaga was one of the speakers. I was just like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. What are we doing, team? It does no part of it makes any sense. But again, this is sort of like the emperor has no clothes territory, mm-hmm. right? That like so much of our like weight loss content comes from people who have never had to lose weight in any right. real way. And certainly um, not at the scale that would be uh, requested of someone my size, not having to lose like 200 pounds or more, you know. But you know, with Oprah, like she really was so influential on like the weight loss front. Do you think that like daytime TV still has that kind of influence on people, um, especially like in the dieting and wellness world? Or like do people look elsewhere now for their influence? <laughs> You know, I'm not intimately familiar with the like daytime TV ratings these days, Mm. but I think like, look, if we're looking at terrestrial TV, um, my guess is that the daytime TV demographic is getting older over time uh, and it's influential to the segment of people who are still watching network daytime TV, Mm -hmm. right? Which is like, uh, probably not people my age and younger, you know, like... (laughs) Not so much. Taking a wild um, guess there. <laughs> to, to my mind, I think the much more sort of influential places where folks are uh, exposed to that kind of stuff are, you know, podcast and streaming ads for services like Noom or. Um, Noom? Oh, buddy. Oh, buddy. Hello. Oh, Noom God. is. Uh, this is how I know you don't have a Hulu subscription. Um, <laughs> Okay, call me out. Thank you. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, (laughs) No, uh, Noom is a service that is proud to tell you it's not a diet. It's cognitive behavioral therapy to change your relationship to food, except when you sign up, the first thing it tells you is, congratulations, you'll be eating 1,200 calories a day. Uh, It also quizzes you on uh, like diet knowledge and like nutrition knowledge, which are things like if you eat off of smaller plates, you won't eat as much. That's good. Right. Except that's been debunked for like a really long time at this point. So it's like the king of diets that is doing the Jedi mind trick of like, it's not a (laughs) diet. (laughs) Don't look over here. Right. But it is absolutely like the standard issue calorie restricted diet. Right. Um, 
that kind of stuff plus uh influencers and like the proliferation of like fat tummy not fat tummy whoops <laughs> flat tummy tea although all right fat tummy tea sounds good to me <laughs> uh, which is just straightforwardly a laxative right like that's what that is yeah. that's what keeps getting sold by so many influencers whoops um that stuff to me feels much more insidious um than uh you know oprah doesn't even have a show anymore and even if she did I don't know that anybody in daytime ever had quite as much sway as Oprah Winfrey did. You know what I mean? Like she was, she was the queen of the, of the format uh, for many, many years there. No, Dr. How Phil was always saying something crazy. Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz who both. Yeah. They're not both, both actually doctors. Right. So I don't know about Dr. Phil. I think he is, does have a doctorate. Dr. Oz is a surgeon and reportedly a very good surgeon who what? just keeps yeah, I know. It's confusing. It's confusing for me, too. He's, like, extremely good at the thing that he trained for, and then he keeps going off into the hinterlands of things he did not <laughs> train for. And you're like, stop talking about raspberry ketones and green coffee beans. That's not... Talk about heart surgery. <laughs> you're really good at surgery. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, yeah, but also, like, both members of the extended uh, Oprah Winfrey universe, Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz... <laughs> both both getting their starts oh tough going tough going (laughs) okay well i have one final question for you oh tell me i feel like i'm taking up a lot of your time but um what is the maintenance phase origin story how did that oh yeah um it's not that exciting Um (laughs) (laughs) okay ending the episode on a <laughs> no, 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 no. It's um so I uh years ago uh my co-host Michael Hobbs had been working on a story that was published called Everything You Know About Obesity is Wrong. He contacted me to see if I would be willing to do an interview. At that point, I was writing anonymously, and the idea of talking to a reporter was like terrifying to me. Um, so I just straight up ghosted him for like a couple of years. Uh, and then, yeah, it's not, not my finest moment. Um, (laughs) And, uh, I posted something on Twitter about going up to Seattle, which is where he lived at the time. And he was like, Hey, can we get lunch? And I said, yeah. And we really hit it off. And then anonymous by the time I was still anonymous when that happened as well. Um, but I'd sort of relaxed into anonymity a little more, um, and we really, really hit it off and had a great time. And like six months later, the pandemic hit and everybody was at home. And he was like, do you want to like do a podcast? And I was like, okay, that sounds fun. Uh, so we recorded six episodes just as like a little taster to see if other people liked it and to see if we liked it. Uh, and we liked it a lot and other people liked it even more than we liked it. Uh, so we So we kept making the show. Um, and I didn't necessarily see it at the start as being like a like long-term project that I would have a ton to contribute to, but the more we do the show, the more excited I get about the things that we get to cover, uh, on the show. That's how I know anything about medicine shows is all (laughs) research for the show, right? Like there's like, so there's, uh, so many things that it has uh, brought into my life, but but yeah, the origin story of it is basically like Mike tried to be my friend for a really long time for years. (laughs) And I was just like too afraid and just like receded like a little tortoise into my shell, uh, and waited until I guess I was ready. (laughs) Did you only 
stop becoming anonymous once you release the podcast? Yeah, right about the same time. So the first couple of episodes, I don't even think that I say my name uh, in the episode. Yeah, I'm not I'm not positive, (laughs) but I think like some of those early episodes, I just say your fat friend uh, instead of uh, instead of Aubrey. Um, but like, yeah, it was, it was right around then we released the podcast for the first time, I think in like September or October of 2020. Mm-hmm. And my book, my first book came out in November of 2020. And that was the point at which I was like, you can't promote a book with a bag over your head. How's this going to go? How are you going to do it, bud? Um, <laughs> so that was sort of like the un- anonymizing uh, moment for me. And it was right around the same time as uh, the podcast premiered. So there you go. And why did you ever want to be anonymous? I mean, a couple of reasons. One is uh, I was um, running a nonprofit and I knew that there were a number of colleagues who would be very hostile to talking about fat people Um in, as sort of being in any kind of immutable state, right? Like as fat people in a static way of just like, they're staying fat, fat people. But I think more than that, you know, writing on the internet as anybody who's not like a thin, straight, white, able-bodied dude, <laughs> right? Like it's rough going. Um, and I think as any fat listeners can tell you, even if you have 50 followers and you say something just neutral about being fat. Whereas in sort of body positivity world, a thin person saying, I'm going to go get a pizza or whatever, uh, would be met with like, yes, get it. That's amazing. Live your best life. What that's met with when fat people say it is I'm going to find you and kill you. Right. Like there is like, there is just a real night and day sort of response to fat people, even just like posting a selfie, right. That like, the amount of violence that that calls up in people is really great. And that is um, what I was afraid of. Um, And I ended up getting doxxed. So it was not, uh, it was not baseless fear. Yeah, totally. But also I got doxxed while I was still anonymous. So anonymity didn't really protect me much, you know? (laughs) So like, there you go. I guess I'm just out in the world now. We'll we'll see how it all goes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. Actually, final question. I keep... Mm. No, you are a great conversationalist because I feel like every time this I is very question, fun. I'm like, Wait, I have more questions. Like, don't go. <laughs> <laughs> so, what are you working on now? Where can we look for you in the future? I am about halfway through a third book. I'm very excited about okay, that. Wowie. Wowie, here okay, we go. No one says that. I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, but your third book. <laughs> oh, yeah. So uh, working on a third book uh, that'll be out. A thing that I have learned from writing books is that you write a book and then you turn it in and then it comes out like a year later. So it'll be a minute before that one comes out. Um, but the main places that folks can find me are at YR Fat Friend across platforms on social media and uh, co-hosting Maintenance Phase, our little podcast about um, dieting and wellness and weight loss stuff. And uh, there is a documentary called Your Fat Friend um, that is now touring film festivals and hopefully will be coming to streaming somewhere near you sometime soon. We'll find out. I'll share more as I know more. Oh my God. Wait, documentary yeah. about you? Yeah, correct. Wild. Filmed over the course of like six years. Um, oh so my it's, God. yeah, it's a serious, it's uh, the director, Jeannie Finley, reached out within like 
four or five months of me writing my first piece uh, and wanted to talk about uh, fatness and fat stuff. And that turned into a feature length documentary <laughs> over the course of a very long time. It's very That's wild. Boyhood, but you know, they like built it over. <laughs> <laughs> totally. It's boyhood, but it's like fat ladyhood. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So those are the places to find me. And I've uh, written two books. Um, one of them is called what we don't talk about when we talk about fat. And the other one is called you just need to lose weight and 19 other myths about fat people and uh, more forthcoming. Yeah. Okay. I'm excited. I am almost through your second book, which. Oh, thanks buddy. <laughs> and I appreciate you know, I, it. What I really, really liked about it is that you <clears> have like plans of actions like at the end of the chapter. So, I mean, yeah. if any listener hasn't read the book, but it's like 19 myths. And then at the end of like every myth explaining it, there's like what you can do. And I thought that yeah. was really helpful because I feel like a lot of the times in this like information overload arena that we're all in, it's like, okay, I know this. Now what do I do with my life? Right. <laughs> now I just feel bleak. <laughs> where do I take that feeling of bleakness yeah yeah so I thought that was like really helpful really cool and very unique oh, and I you. hope other people incorporate that kind of advice into their own books <laughs> yeah I'm I'm hopeful about it it's been really interesting and fascinating to hear from folks who've been sort of uh taken on some of those action steps and a lot of folks who are like having really lovely heart to heart conversations with the fat people in their lives about things that they got wrong. It's like incredibly wonderful and heartwarming to me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you Aubrey, oh, for being on the This pod. has been such a joy truly <laughs> anytime. Uh thank you for having me. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.